Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's Bible study is Lesson 4 over the book of Isaiah, chapters 8 and 9. Welcome, welcome to our study of Isaiah. We had a good fellowship meal. We had a great testimony. Thank you, Laura Lynn, wherever you are. There she is. Thank you so much. We're in Isaiah chapter 8, and we're going to be making it down into chapter 10 tonight. Very important passages here. So let's pray together, and then we will dive in. God, we are grateful for the time we have to spend together. Thank you, God, for the fall season here. Thank you for our opportunity to come together as a church uh, to study. We pray, God, your blessings over our time here, over those that are watching. Also, God, that you just put your hand on each one of us, that you fill us with your spirit. God, that you'd help us to see and understand the things that we cannot understand by ourselves, and that are not a matter of intellect, and not a matter of education. They're a matter of the communication that we have through your Spirit. We know and acknowledge that he's the teacher of all of us, each of us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us through him. Thank you, God, for Isaiah. Thank you for his faithfulness to you. And thank you for faithfully bringing to us your very words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 8, we're going to be there in just a second. Isaiah's prophecy is primarily, as we said before, aimed at the southern kingdom of Judah. So Israel and uh, has this uh, splitting of the sheets and divides into the northern kingdom, which is referred to as Ephraim or Israel. Uh, Ephraim is one of the tribes, it's the head tribe, if you will, but there are ten tribes in that region, and in the southern tribes, which are Judah and, uh, and uh, Benjamin. And so that leaves us, uh, leaves us with twelve. There's actually not twelve tribes, there's actually thirteen tribes. Did you know that? And fourteen names. And so you'll find the Holy Spirit moving in and out of operating within 14 different names and 13 different tribes, depending on where you find the list. And there's multiple lists, both Old and New Testament. And almost none of them are the same. He's moving in and out of these different tribes and different names for different particular reasons. And what a great study is just to determine why he does what he does and why uh, he, he, he uses and subtracts and adds different names at different times. So... So these ten northern tribes separate from the two southern tribes, and uh, there have always been conjectures and that the tribes, have you heard, heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel, right? You've heard of, that's total baloney, right? You know that, right? They were never lost. There's no reason, there's no indication in the Scripture they were ever lost. The reason why people conjecture that it's, they're possibly lost is because the ten northern tribes get completely annihilated. But that's, that's assuming that there are no remnants of those tribes anywhere else. And that's, in fact, what the Scripture actually teaches. But, but as an example of what that conjecture does, one of the main tenets of Joseph Smith, which eventually became the Mormons, was that he deceived his followers into believing that the American Indians were, were the ten lost tribes. If you're not familiar with Joseph Smith and how much of a liar he was, don't read any Mormon literature if you want to find out the truth, because all their stuff has been redacted. Because, well... Uh, again, I have a ton of respect for Mormons as, as a people, some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. There's a reason why FBI will pretty much only hire Mormons, because they're the only people with clean records, you bunch of Baptist, wicked sinners. They're, they are very clean, but again, because their whole hope of heaven hangs on the fact that they're perfect, and of course we know that they're not. It does not hang on the hope of Jesus being perfect, which is the only way out of this life and into the next one. So, 
So uh, using that, that ruse, Joseph Smith deceived his followers, and then, of course, he continued to deceive them in many other things. Others have claimed that the Anglos were the ten lost tribes, in particular uh, the English and the Irish. So if you're English and Irish, you were at one time assumed to be one of the ten lost tribes. Again, it was, it, was, it was false. It was false teaching, but it was used to promote lies, like, for instance, the white race is the superior race, which isn't true. One of the reasons is because there's no such thing, ladies and gentlemen, as race. We all got off of one boat, right? Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, and then we all came originally. That was a bottleneck in our genetics gene pool. And the original bottleneck was just uh, about 2,000 years before with Adam and Eve. So who, by the way, who had sons who married their sisters? That's a, pretty, that's a, that's a redneck bottleneck right there for sure what the Bible teaches. I'm sorry, it's just what it is. So we're of the same gene pool. And uh, in interesting, well, and we'll, we'll, some, some of this that's happened with the Israeli tribes is, is also a great teacher on this. If we study the scriptures carefully, we'll see that these tribes were never lost. Here uh, is Second Chronicles chapter uh, 11, verses 14 through 16. And notice what it says here. So they're split between northern and southern kingdoms. Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern king, northern ten tribes, and Rehoboam becomes the king of the southern two tribes. But watch what happens. The Levites left their common lands, that's the northern lands where they used to live, and their possessions, and came to Judah and Jerusalem. So now we've gone from two tribes in the southern kingdom to three tribes. So we're up, down, from, down to nine in the north, up to three in the south. Okay? But watch this. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them for serving as priests, he appointed as anybody who could spout some scriptures and claim they believed in God. He appointed them as priests, of course, right against the scriptures, what the scriptures saw. And after the Levites left, those from the tribes of Israel, from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice the Lord of their God. They moved there. So, didn't matter what of the ten tribes, there was a contingent, if you will, that moved out of those, the, the faithful, who didn't want to follow Jeroboam, who didn't believe he was doing right, which of course he was not. He set up these calves, he set up these fake altars, he built a new temple, all this stuff, and, or a fake worship system. And so they were like, we're not having any of this. We don't care what happened between the northern and southern tribes. We're moving to the place where God is honored. And so they moved to Jerusalem, moved into Judea. So, so, so here's a, a basic principle. Representatives of all the tribes moved south, so there was never a missing tribe, genetically speaking. The northern tribes, 100% of those that remained, were annihilated by God. But even though the tribes were separated in their, um, what's the word, Rep representatively, uh, uh, in, where, where's the word I wrote here? Um, it, territorially, there were northern, ten northern tribes. Territorially, there were two southern tribes. But genetically, the tribes were all intermixed. So I might have a person who was in Judah, of the tribe of Judah, living up in Dan, and a person from the tribe of Dan living down in Judah. Does that make sense? So territorially separated, genetically, they were all over the place. And here we have it. Some of these genetically of the northern tribes moved south and never returned uh, north. Uh, after this, God could have killed every last person in the northern kingdom, which he pretty much did. And you still would have had representatives of every tribe in existence that could carry on the tribe's genetics. Today, the tribes are not lost. And the reason why we know that is because the Israelis have done a lot of research into genetics. And we've talked about this before, the genetics of these, these uh, 
uh, priests that came out of Africa, completely black. They're just as black as they could possibly be, which you would also be if your ancestors had lived in Africa for the past 2,000 years. I'm sorry how white you are right now, you would turn black, because Africa will do that to you. It's the environment. Changes your skin, changes your hair, changes everything. You just subject yourself. Or you can take a black person and move him for, for 2,000 years up to Northern Ireland, and guess what color his ancestors or his descendants will color? White, just like us. It's just it's, it's exposure to the sun. So, so anyway, this tribe, this group of people that came out of Africa, they claimed that they were not only Jews, but they were also priests, and they began to run these genetic tests on them, and they found out that they had the phenotype for not just the priests, but Aaron. They, they have localized Aaron, the priest, of, from all the other Levites, and they, all, not, not, they were not just priests. They were not le- just Levitical. They were Aaronic priests. They were of Aaron's group. So they've gotten really specific and all that to say just simply this, they have isolated all the phenotypes for all the 12, actually 13 tribes. And they, 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 they are representatives of all 13 tribes on planet Earth today. They are never missing. And by the way, they should have never, we never should have fallen for the whole ruse of it, them being missing, because this is the way James opens up his book. So this is James writing in the first century. James, a bondservant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. Apparently he, he figured they were going to be reading his book. They weren't missing to James. It wasn't like, oh, I wish we could find the other ten tribes. The whole ruse, like I said, that Joseph Smith pulled over eyes, a bag over the eyes of his followers. The Bible seems to have anticipated every heresy. In fact, you'll find that to be true. So one of them, like I said, these ten missing northern tribes. So now we're ready to look at Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah is going to prophesy... Uh, about the overthrow of the northern kingdom. It's going to be typified by its capital city, which is Samaria, and also along the, over, along the way of the overflow of the overthrow of the land of Syria, which is typified by its capital city, which is Damascus. So verse 1. Now Isaiah is going to be doing some weird stuff here, so I just want to warn you ahead of time. Here we go. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it an ordinary letter, swift to the booty, Speedy in the prey. That's an English translation. Some of you have maybe the King James Version or the New King James Version, and it doesn't read that translation. It gives you a Hebrew uh, uh, statement. You see that? Anybody have the King James or New King James? It has this statement. Not, it, doesn't have, it has a Hebrew uh, alliteration as, a, as, as opposed to the actual translation which we have, which I just read to you in the English. And I myself will make myself, and this is, that's an important name, by the way, it's, it's just it's five words, six words, seven words. But it's, it's important because it's going to turn into be one of the names of one of Isaiah's kids. Just watch. And I will make to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest of Zechariah, the son of Jerobachiah. So I approach, here's, now he's back into his own commentary, I approach the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. So what is that? That's his wife. So you had the pastor and the pastor's wife. You had the prophet and the prophet's wife. They had kids together. Is that a shocker to you? I hope not. They had kids. The, the strange thing, though, is that they named this kid the, the same sentence basically up there, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's the tough thing. You didn't pick the wrong parents to be born to because you get these kind of weird names. It's interesting the odd things that God asks. So he he says, write this name down. And then later on his wife becomes pregnant. He says, that's what I want you to name this kid. 
So, you know, you thought you had a hard time spelling your name in, in elementary school. What about this poor guy? He, he uh, often got asked his prophets to do some seemingly strange things, including naming their kids prophetically. I want to show you a couple of examples. One of the best-known examples is, of course, Hosea. Let's, why don't we go over there and uh, read a few places. In fact, I thought I had it written down here, but I don't see it. Let's go, let's go look at Hosea, Hosea chapter 1. So you have Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. So Hosea's entire ministry, at least to begin with, is to marry this woman who is a known prostitute. What that would mean, among other things, is that when she becomes pregnant, you're not sure whose kid that it is. God told him to marry a woman like that. Why? Because prophets were often asked to do really weird things. That's pretty weird. So the Lord spoke, verse, verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1, when the Lord spoke to Hosea, the Lord says, Go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. That means not knowing whether they were yours or not. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Doesn't know if it's his or not. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For yet in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu the blood, with the bloodshed of Jezreel, which is a location in Israel. It's also known as the Valley of Armageddon. So he has, he, he has two more kids, and they all have similar names. She can see verse 6 again, and I gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have needs to not have compassion. So she's, her name is prophetic of what God's going to be doing to the land of Israel. And when she had weaned her down in verse 8, she conceived again to a son, a son, and the Lord said to her, Name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. So you've got a son that's named my, not my kid, basically. Wow. What's your son's name, not my kid? Weird stuff, right? You don't want to be, a, you know, you wouldn't just, you know, vote and say, hey, I want to be a prophet of God. It sounds like a lot of fun. No, it doesn't. No, it definitely doesn't. Maybe the, the, the most um, hidden prophet who has a son with a prophetic name is actually in the book of Genesis chapter 5. Why don't you turn over there with me? A guy by the name of Enoch. And Enoch had a son who is the oldest recorded, who had the oldest recorded age in the Bible. What was his name? Methuselah. Now you know his name, but do you know what it means? Because all these names we have in this list in chapter 5 of Genesis all have names. In fact, when you add them together, they make a sentence, which is actually very much prophetic, very much the gospel. So if you look with me down in verse uh, 21, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. There's the name. Enoch walked with God 300 years after he had become the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him, so he's raptured out, he's taken out. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. And Methuselah lived 782 years. Afterward, he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. 
and he died. You know, one of the oldest otherwise, other than Methuselah, you know who it was, as far as recorded age? Adam. Adam lives 950. So if you overlay, one of the great studies I would recommend to you is to overlay these ages, because in chapter 5 we're giving each man how old he was before his first son was born, and then how much longer he lived. And each one of these ages, one of the things you're going to find out is that basically Adam is still alive when Methuselah is born. Because they're, they're so long. Imagine if, imagine if we lived 900 years. We would, be, we would be twice as old as the English language. The English language is only about 400 years old. Realize that? I mean, wrap your mind around that. 900 years ago, there was no, no such thing as English. We were speaking some version of German and French, in the, if you're from an England area, or, there were, or maybe, you were, maybe, you're, you're, maybe you were a Swede and you were speaking Swedish, or maybe you were a Norski or some other type, I don't know. Uh, but you know, it, it's interesting how much we take for granted. These guys, their overlapping ages is, very, is an incredible study, highly recommend it to you. But one of the things you'll find very interesting, among other things about the, their ages, is that once you lay out their ages, you find out that Methuselah died a very unique death. What I mean by that is when you lay out their ages, you'll find out chronologically that Methuselah dies the same day, the same year, I should say, that the flood comes. Guess what his name means? His death shall bring. That's what Methuselah means. It's Hebrew. How did Enoch know that? Well, I would suggest to you that he didn't, but he was the prophet of God. And how did, you know, you got Hosea naming his kids weird names. You got Isaiah naming his kids weird names. Why? Because God's in charge and knows what he's doing. And these things absolutely came true. Uh, the, the prophetic names that these kids were named, it was, a, it, was it a burden to bear? Yeah, I do believe that for sure. But nonetheless, uh, God had a purpose in all of it. So back to Isaiah. I've actually lost my place. I thought I had a little ribbon there. There it is. Isaiah 8. We're going to be running several places tonight, so you might want to hold your place there. So God is going to be predicting the rise of Assyria and the defeat of Assyria and the defeat of Syria. Don't get the two mixed up. Assyria and Syria were two different things. Assyria was way up in in uh, Kalna and in uh, Nineveh, whereas Syria is still with us today. We still have Damascus. It's still in the same place. Two different two different places altogether. The Lord said to me, take for yourself, we already read that part, down in verse uh, 4. Before the boy, this kid that's named Maher Shalal Hashbaz, before this boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother. How, do, how old were your kids when they started saying this stuff like that? Depends on the kid. I had a daughter that was talking by the time she was six months old. I had a son that didn't talk until probably he was three. So, you know, it just depends. So, but it suffices to say, by the time a child is able to cry out, my father, my mother, still, they're still very young. Notice his, his prediction. Before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king. So they were the threatening nations. They were coming against Judah. They were coming against the land that Isaiah was prophesying to. And God says, tell the king and tell the people of Judah not to worry about those people. Within 18 months, 15 months, two years, they're going to be gone. And it happened exactly like that. So then, again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoiced in Rezin, he's the king of, of, of uh, Syria, 
rejoiced in resin and the son of uh, Remaliah. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong, abundant waters of the Euphrates. So he wasn't going to flood them with water. He's talking about the kingdom of Assyria, which is way up on the Euphrates in the land of Nineveh. They became a very powerful nation, uh, ruled the world for a very long time, very significant nation. And they're going to be sweeping down and wiping out the northern kingdom of Israel and uh, Syria. So, even the king of Assyria, verse, verse 7, in all his glory, and, I will, and it will rise up over the channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass through. Remember now, Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, conquered it. Then what do they do? Stop? No. They invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and tried to conquer it, but one of the, one of the key prophets of that process, if you will, was Isaiah. King Hezekiah, if you remember the story, they were surrounded. In one night an angel goes out, and we're going to be getting to that in later chapters. But an angel of the Lord goes out and kills 185,000 Assyrians, one angel. Don't mess with angels. Just one. Jesus says, do you not know I could call a legion of angels to come and protect me? He says to his disciples. So if one can do that, what can a legion do? I'm thinking some bad stuff. So, so, uh, so that's where it is. Verse, uh, keep going, let's go down through verse, nine, verse 15. Be broken, O peoples, be shattered, and give all ear, give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. In other words, you're going to try and try, but it's not going to work. Devise a plan, but it will, it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So these that are coming against them, they won't, they won't, be, able to, they won't be able to defeat Judah, and they in fact did not. For thus says the Lord, for thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regards to all that the people are called conspiracies, and you are not to fear what they fear or be dread of it. It's the same thing your pastor told you. Quit watching news, the news. That's what he's saying. Quit, quit paying attention to what the people are saying. Listen to what I'm saying. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread, and he shall become a sanctuary to both the houses of Israel and a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them. And they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and uh, be caught. And so we have one of the first instances we have in the book of Isaiah where this whole issue of God being this stone is brought up. And if we had time to run down all the references to the stone or the rock that we have in both the Old Testament and New Testament, we would see that they're all tied together, pointing in some way to Christ. Uh, the stone, as Jesus said, this, he's the stone that the builders rejected, right? We would see that these books, written by 40-something different authors over 2,000 years, over several, you know, uh, in, from several different continents, that these books actually are a single message system uh, conveyed by a single mind. Every number, every name, every detail in the Scripture is there by design. Even the stuff that you think isn't right is actually it's even more right than, than you can imagine. Uh, no mistakes. Not only is there, it's a single message system, it also has its origins outside of our time, space, domain. How do we know that? Because consistently your Bible predicts the future with absolute accuracy. There is no other text that does this. How could you possibly accurately talk about something that has not happened? Like I said, how, 
can you remember tomorrow? God remembers every tomorrow and predicts them accurately. How is it possible if you live within our space-time domain, which I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, until it gets here, and then I can tell you the second after it happens, how is it possible that these writers, being just like us, just human beings, write down information that accurately predicts things that happens hundreds, thousands of years in advance? The origins have to be outside of our space-time domain. There's no other explanation for it. There is not another book like this. There's not another one. So let's look at a couple of places where we can see these uh, interesting references. We're not going to run down all the references to a stone, but interesting references. Let's go to the, the New Testament first, 1 Corinthians 10. Hold your spot because we're coming back. 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians is right before Second Corinthians. There we go. You're getting it now. First Corinthians ten, verses three and four. So so actually let's just start with verse one. But I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, he's talking about the Jews, were all under the cloud. That's the way they lived. When they were moving through the wilderness, there was this shadow, this cloud over the top of them. The, the Shekinah glory of God, which is a light by day and a cloud by, I mean, a light by night and a cloud by day that sheltered them. That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they all drank from the same spiritual rock which followed them. That's pretty weird, isn't it? So we were camped in one spot, and we got up and moved, and we pulled up the tabernacle and all the tent pegs, and we moved 15 miles, and we put up the tent. My wife says, hey, wasn't that rock at the old campsite? Yeah, I think it was. Kind of feeling weird. <laughs> Look at that. Isn't that interesting? It's the rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What a statement. This is the same rock that Moses was told to speak to at the Mount Sinai, of Mount Sinai, and water gushed out, and not just a little water. Remember, you've got two million people, plus at least double that number of animals, chickens, goats, ducks, goldfish, everything else, that you have to water. And it can't be just a little stream. How are you going to get two million people on a stream that's six feet wide? It had to be a gusher. This same rock later on becomes Moses and Aaron's downfall because God says go back. and They were, they were now in the, in the area of Kadesh Barnea, which uh, Kevin and I and one of his sons are going to be camping there in less than a month. It's going to be awesome, man. It's going to be so cool. We're going to stand in the same place where, where uh, Moses makes a big mistake. And uh, you're going to see his modern Israeli tank tracks in the sand that from 1967 and 1973 wars. It's, it's like the wildest thing. Anyway, we're going to have so much fun. And, um, and we're going to drink Turkish coffee and stay up all night because if, once you drink that stuff, you are up. You are so up. But it's good. You know, you only live once. So, so Moses, the second time, is told at Kadesh Barnea that he is to go and speak to the rock, but this time out of anger towards the people. He says, must I bring you water from this rock? And he whacks it with his stick. And we would say, you know, wow, well, you shouldn't have done that. God says, because you disobeyed me and did not honor me before the people, you and Aaron will not be going into the promised land. So this same rock. So it's interesting. Now, this rock that followed them. 
wow, I didn't write this. I mean, there it is in the Bible. Did you, have you ever seen that before? So let's go look at another place where the rock shows up. Look at Daniel chapter 2. Here we have another instance, an earlier instance, if you could, well, not, not earlier than the rock in the wilderness, but a rock earlier than 1 Corinthians at least. Daniel chapter 2 is the story of how Daniel basically rises to uh, preeminence and his, and his uh, three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it comes out of a great dilemma in which the king named Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And he sees in this vision the things, and let's read it, but let's, let's pay careful attention to what happens at the very end. Verse 24 through, through uh, 46. It says, therefore Daniel went into Arioch. Now here's, he said, listen, if anybody can't tell me what the dream is and interpret it, I'm going to kill every last magician and soothsayer and uh, advisor. That's the way you clean house, by the way, right there. If one of you can't tell the whole story, then I'm killing all of you. They were despots. They could do whatever they wanted to. He inherited a bunch of old cronies from his dad, if you know the story of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and this was the way he cleaned house. He was going to do it. And Daniel stopped him. So it says, Daniel went into Arioch, and the king had appointed to destroy the men, the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation of the king. Remember, he doesn't know what the dream is, number one. So he's got to tell him what the dream is, and then the interpretation. Of course, God's given him that ability. And Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him following, I found a man. He didn't find him. That's a typical bureaucrat, you know. He didn't find him. Daniel found him. Anyway, he's just taking credit, trying to get, you know, trying to get a few points. I found a man among the exiles of Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Notice Daniel very carefully, very humbly says, As for the mystery which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. And this was your dream and the visions in it and the mind while you were on your bed. He's about to blow him away. As for you, O king, while you were on your bed, thoughts turned to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome, and the head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly of thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. You continued looking. At this point, his jaw is just like on the floor. Nebuchadnezzar's. You continue looking until the stone was cut out without, till a stone was cut out, pay careful attention. The stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet. Now, if this statue was a human, is that where you would hit him if you were trying to knock him out? Now I mean, it'd go for the head, right? So this is a very, it's not just, oh well, the rock slipped and it landed on its feet, but nonetheless, we still won kind of the war. No, this is a very specific placement of the stone. So these these metals, as we're going to see, represent different kingdoms. And the final kingdom has a final phase, 
of ten kings, and there's ten toes on the statue, and the stone strikes that specific spot. He struck the statue with his feet with iron and clay and crushed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all were crushed, crushed at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that there was no trace of them found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It's not talking about a rock. It's talking about Jesus. This is the dream. Now we shall tell you interpretation before you, O king. You, O king, are the king of kings. To whom the God is heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory. It's the kingdom of Babylon. And whenever the sons of men dwell in the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and it calls you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. And after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, Persia. Again, how, do, how does the Bible predict so accurately the things that are coming way before they do unless it was formed outside of our space-time domain? There's no other explanation. Inferior to you in another third kingdom of bronze, that would be the Greeks, which will rule over, over all the earth. And then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks into pieces, it will crush and break into all, all things in pieces. And in that, that's, of course, the kingdom of Rome. And in that you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom. So the final phase of this Roman kingdom will be this divided kingdom, divided into ten kings. And it will be divided kingdom, and it will have in it the toughness of iron, and as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as for the toes of the feet, how many toes? Ten, right? And they're making it out of regular, you know, representative human being. As of the toes of the feet, which are partly of iron, partly of clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, and they will not adhere to one another, even as the iron does not combine with, with pottery. And in the days of those kings... You switch from toes to kings, because you, you need to know that. Pay attention. Pay attention. How many toes? How many kings? The final phase, what we're looking for, you'll know when we're there, is when the Rome, original Roman Empire turns into ten kings. We're not there. We're not there. Are we closer? Yes. Are we there? No. We don't have ten kings. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will, be left to, left, will not be left for, for another people, and it will crush and put to an end all of these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, so it's not of human origin. And it, that it was crushed, it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, and the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so that the dream is true. And his ter interpretation is trustworthy. One more place, Zechariah. Like I said, we're not going to run them all down because we just wind up reading the whole Bible. I'm, I mean, I don't know if y'all have time for that. We can do that. Zechariah. So if you go to Matthew and turn left to Malachi, and then one more book, you're in Zechariah. Zechariah 3, another odd little prophecy, but when taken together with all these things that we've been reading, you're going to see how significant it is. It adds, it adds quite a bit of flavor to it. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He's in the middle of standing before God, talking about the priest whose name is Joshua, the high priest, and Zechariah is seeing this vision, receiving this prophecy, and has this experience with God. He says, now listen, Joshua, the High priest, God is now speaking to the high priest. You and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, 
they are, they are men who are assembled. For behold, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. Now, we've been, if you've been in Isaiah with us, you know that this name is a title of the Messiah. It's the Netzer. It's the same word that is the root word for the word Nazarene. Jesus is called a Nazarene. It's, a Netzer was, uh, in, it comes from other plants, but in particular, it's the olive tree. So you have an old olive tree that gets super old, and I mean super old, 2,000 years old. They stop producing olives, but out of the root will come these Netzers, these shoots. Uh, not, they don't come up from another olive plant or another olive seed that come up actually from the old roots, and these old roots produce this netzer. If this netzer is allowed to grow and cultivate it, it turns into another iteration of the same tree. They're genetically absolutely identical. So it's, he's saying here there's one that's going to come up, this netzer, this, this branch, but it comes. its origins are not going to be ultimately human. For behold, the stone, there we go, that I have set before Joshua on one stone or seven eyes. If you're walking through the woods and there's a stone with seven eyes on it, what do you think? Run! Same thing, you know, especially if you see a snake talking to you. Run! <laughs> oh, man. On one stone are seven eyes. What is that? Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it. Woo! What is that? And declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Oh, wow. Now we're into salvation stuff. We're into forgiveness of sins. So this stone with seven eyes, what are those seven eyes? If we skip forward to chapter 4, and if you'll look down there uh, with me, uh, let's see. Hmm. Verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven, what's he talking about? The, the seven that were referred to back in chapter 3. These seven eyes will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. So you've got a stone with seven eyes, but those eyes are the eyes of the Lord. What does it tell you about the stone? The stone is the Lord. And engraved. Was Jesus not engraved? Did you know that? No, Jesus was not only pierced, he was also engraved. He has permanent marks. Did you not know that? So, so, so Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus has appeared to the, uh, to the ten because he wasn't there. He says, unless I touch the nail prints in his hands and put my hand into the scar into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus shows up in the room and says, knock yourself out. The only man-made thing is going to be in heaven is going to be the scars that we put on him. He's engraved. And because of his engraving, our sins, just like it says here, were removed in one day. So this stone is significant. It's very, very significant. Again, we can run down lots of other references. We can see that. But, but Jesus claims to be uh, this stone. Uh, here here, here he, he, refer, he actually quotes from Isaiah. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone that this was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. Of course, he's quoting to them in the Bible. They know the Bible very well. They just don't think that Jesus is this guy. And of course, they're the builders who reject that stone. So it's, uh, you know, all pulls together. So back to Isaiah. Chase the significant rabbit. We're back to running down the middle. Verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. 
And I will wait for the for, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face in the house of Jacob, and I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and wonders. This is Isaiah speaking. He actually winds up with two kids who are named prophetically. They both their names have references to some prophetic event. I and my kids, my children are signs and wonders to Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells uh, on Mount on Mount Zion. Verse 19. And when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they not consult the dead? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? So, so we, today we have palm readers and fortune tellers and tea leaf readers and tarot card readers. And at best, these people are liars. At the best. At their worst, they're conjuring demons so that if you go to them and listen to what they say, you're actually receiving a prophecy, which demons can't prophesy. But I, I can, I, actually, I can prophesy just as good as the demon can. You know, you know how? I can say tomorrow you're going to get shot by a gun. Then I sit outside your house, and tomorrow you step outside, and I personally shoot you. It's called self-fulfilling prophecy. Demons can do that. I won't do that, Mark. Don't worry. They have the power, the capacity to do something like that because they operate just like we do. They live today, day to day. They can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. They're limited in, their, their, in, that, in that sense. They're not limited in the sense that they are um, supernatural beings. They do have some capacities bigger than ours, but they cannot read. They do not have any idea about tomorrow, but they would love to run your life. And so what they do when you go to them is they tell you how to, basically what to do. And so what you're doing is instead of obeying God, you're obeying the word of demons. And that's what you get. At, I said, at the worst, that's who these people are. Uh, God has a lot to say about them all over the Scriptures, but not the least of what He says here. You shall not learn to follow the abominations of these na- those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. It's burned burn them to, uh, to death. Or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, etc. These things were all, the abomina- all abominations to God. All, by the way, kinds of exercises which are being taught in our school systems today. Did you know that? In, in multiple school systems throughout our nation today, kids in elementary school are being taught how to find their spirit guides. And let me tell you, there's plenty of spirits out there that would love to guide you. And among them is the Spirit of God, of course. But there, there's thousands of them, if not millions. They're not good. And you have a child, six years old, seven years old, eight years old, being taught to to, to be in relationship with demons? How's that going to work out? You don't want to be in a relationship with demons. They're, no offense, they're smarter than you. Don't engage them at all. Don't listen to anything that they say. They're total deceivers. They will wreck your life because that's all that they're about. And so what do you think they're doing with these children? It's not good. So, so back to Isaiah, verse 20. To the law and to the testimony... If they do not speak according to the word, it is because they have no dawn. So you've gone to all these people who are interpreting demons' words for you. The only, there's only one truth, and that's the word of God. To the law and testimony. That's the only light we have. They will pass through the, the land hard-pressed because they don't listen to the word of God. Famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as, as they face upward, and they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gleam of anguish, and they will be driven away 
into darkness. So that's what happens. So you turn your back on the truth, you turn your back on what God says. The truth is the equivalent to light, and so if you walk away from the truth, you walk out of the light. And life gets really dark, and stuff happens to you in the dark that you don't, you know, what happened? What did I hit? What did I trip over? What was that? Who is that? It's terrible to be in the dark. Terrible. Chapter 9. Verse 1 and 2. There will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. He's talking about these northern kingdoms, these northern uh, tribes up around the area of the Sea of Galilee. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. How did God do that? What, what did God do to... Um, fulfill this prophecy. Do you know? Where, where was Jesus' main area of operation? In Galilee. This area. In fact, that's exactly what he's referring to. The people who walk in darkness, verse 2. They walked away from the truth. They walked in the darkness. They walked into all kinds of trouble. But God, who is a gracious God, redeemed them. Because the, the primary area where Jesus grew up in Galilee. He grew up in Nazareth. And he operated around the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, and these areas that are the tribes that's being named here. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in the dark on the land, the light will shine. They shall multiply the nations, thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence with the gladness of harvest, and the men who rejoice with divine spoil. And that's, kind of, that's what happened. Here's Jesus. Uh, here's the fulfillment of that all the way over the New Testament, Matthew 4, verses 12 through 16. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He came and dwelt in Capernaum, right dead on the northern sea of Galilee. We're going to be there. In, I'm so excited about that. We're going to be there in less than, uh, less than four weeks, which is by I've been waiting three years to go. He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Napathy, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. More, more prophecies that are quoted in the New Testament of Isaiah than any other prophet in your Old Testament, partly because Isaiah writes so much. The land of Zebulun, here he is quoting the exact verses we just read. The land of Naphtali, by the sway of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in the darkness have seen a great light, and it goes on. Verse 3. We read verse 3, verse 4. Thou shalt break the yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as in the Battle of Midian, that's the land, that's out in the Valley of Armageddon, Battle of Midian there with uh, Gideon. For every boot, of the boot, every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be burned uh, for fuel of fire. They won't need that anymore. won't be battles anymore. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. There won't be any of this battle anymore, no more bloodshed anymore, because there's coming a son. There's coming this child. It's coming to the Israelis, and he's going to be, the government's going to be on his shoulders. And his name will be called, and here's the shift. It shifts from being just a human right here, because of the names they're going to give him. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government, or of his peace. What does it tell us about the rock that such a stack struck the statue on its feet? It continued to grow until it covered it, filled the entire earth. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David 
and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Jews to this day argue that the Messiah will be only a man. The problem with it is, is their own scriptures. I just read to you the titles that are going to be of their own Messiah. They acknowledge this is a messianic song, messianic statement. But they can't, they can't add in their heads how this man who was born to them, he is going to be born to them. How he could possibly have these titles which only belong to God. And of course the only way you can make these two come together is you have to acknowledge that he's both a man and God all at the same time. So we have, some, have in here Jewish poetry. Jewish poetry does not rhyme like we think it should. We're Westerners. We rhyme by sound. They did not rhyme by sound. Sound meant nothing to them. Meaning meant something to them. Definitions mean something to them. So they would rhyme in meaning, not in sound. So listen to the, to the rhyme, if you will, of this verse from the, stance, from the standpoint of meaning. For a child will be born to us. It's just a direct statement. A son will be given to us. So why, why repeat yourself twice? This is the classic Hebrew poetry. You read the book of Psalms. You read the book of Proverbs. You'll find out you have this antiphonal response. But every time you have the second verse, which it's, it's, it's antiphonal, it always adds something to it. So it says, a child will be born to us. That's how child, children get here, right? They don't fall out of the sky. They don't come out from under a cabbage leaf. I don't know. Maybe it's not where you're from, but it's not the way we come from. You've got to go into the the operating room, and your, for me, and your wife's got to be cut open, and you get this 9-pound, 12-ounce baby out, which you didn't had no idea how they fit a baby that big inside of your little bitty wife, but that's what happens. That's how kids get here, right? So, so what, 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 but what's being stated here is two different things. So a, a child will be born to, I'm sorry, how does it go? A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That actual statement to be given means his origins is not from a birth process. So a child will be born, that's how children get here. A son will be given. That's altogether different. That means you would say something like that if a, if a son came from outside of your family and you adopted him. So he wasn't born to you. So it says on the one hand that he's born, on the other hand it says he's not born. So which is it? Well, it's both. So you have this Jewish poetry that, that takes one thought and continues with that thought, but adds to it. Again, it, it gives us this, this theme that tells us that Jesus is going to be more than just a child born. A son given implies that he comes from somewhere, not just the birth process. So God answers the needs, interestingly enough, as you read the Scriptures, answers the needs of the world quite often by causing babies to be born. So, so the land of Israel, Israel has been exiled or actually been in, the, in Egypt under slavery for 450 years, and God's answer to their problem was a baby. A woman had a baby, and they had to put it in a basket and put it into the river, remember? But it just so happened, coincidentally, to be raised in the, in the palaces of Pharaoh, but it's a Jewish child. So, how, so you're praying, God, give us, please, deliverance, and give us an answer, and, and what are you expecting? I can tell you what, I, I'm, I want fire falling from heaven, I want lightning bolts, I want a uh, bunch of people dead, and you know, 185,000 overnight, that's, a, that's the way to do it, God, let's, let's do that every time. Because then you can see, you know, the progress from one day to the next. You got 185,000 soldiers. The next day, you got 185,000 dead soldiers. That's 
That's good. That's the way I like it to be. But typically, that's not the way God answers prayers. Often, in the, in the Bible, Old and New Testament, God's answers to prayers are babies. Babies. So do we have enough faith to believe that God's process is, can take a long time? Can we look at a child as his mother recognized that this child is, was special? And say, I believe that God can even use a child to deliver us from our circumstances. So a chi- children are, are extremely important to God. I- Israel is in severe decline, and God enables a woman who was otherwise barren by the name of Hannah to give birth to a baby named Samuel. He became their deliverer. He became the bridge between the, the, the judges and the kings. He anoints the first two kings, Saul and, of course, David. The nation is 400 years without a prophet. And Elizabeth brings forth the son by the name of John the Baptist. 400 years, not a single word from God. That's a long time. So that's as old as the English language. Israel sat in, sat in Egypt for 450 years, sat, sat waiting for a prophet to come for 400 years. And you and God get antsy after God hadn't talked to us in a year. You know, we need God, we need an answer from you. God's saying, I can go a long time without giving an answer and it still be good. He did with them. So, so the world is dead in its trespasses and sins, and what happens? Mary gives birth to a baby. God's answer, solution, is a baby. The ones with eyes, heart to see, recognized that. They saw it. This child that's coming, it says here, the government will be on his shoulders. When did that happen? When, when was Jesus ever seated on a throne on the earth in his first 33 years. Well, he was not. So it's something coming. It is. Here's the prophecy. Is the angel reiterates that to Mary as she's wondering how can she be a virgin and still be, have a child. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. That was never a heavenly throne. That throne was never in heaven. That is an earthly throne. That is a Jewish throne. That is in Jerusalem throne. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. That's the stone that's coming. Strike the statue at his feet, as, as we saw. So Mary has this promise. His name will be called. These names are, are significant because, again, they blow out of the water any concept that he might be anything other than God. Wonderful. When was Jesus ever called wonderful? It's actually prior to Isaiah. I want you to go there. You're not doing anything else. Let's go to... Let's go to Judges, chapter 13. Jesus was called wonderful in a not-so-conspicuous place. In fact, you may not have seen this unless, unless you know a little bit more about these appearances of Jesus prior to his in, incarnation. Excuse me. Judges chapter 13, verses 1 through 19. This is the story of Manoah and his wife who have a son. Do you know what his son was named? Hmm? Samson. Shimshon is the way you go to Israel with this, which we're going to be there. Did I say that? We're going to be there in three weeks? It's going to be so much fun. We're going to have so much fun. But you're going to hear them all, not all the time, but sometimes you're going to be talking about the, the, the great warrior Shimshon, and you're like, I don't remember that in the Bible. That's the way they pronounce Samson. They don't, they don't say Samson. 
And I don't know, maybe they speak Hebrew, so I guess they're probably right or we're not, but I don't know. They, should, they need to learn to speak his real name, which is, of course, English. So, no. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So what's God's answer? Quite often it's a baby. Here comes the baby. So that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years, and there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and she had borne no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, Behold, now you are barren and have no, not born a children, and you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. So if you're thinking he had shoulder-length hair, you're not thinking right. He never gets his hair cut for the 30-something years, 40-something years he lives. Long hair. For you shall be a Nazarite. It's a very similar word to the Netzer, or the Nazarene. They have very similar roots. You shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. The woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me. Notice, she doesn't say he's an angel, even though we know he is. So that means he doesn't have, she doesn't describe him with wings, because they never are described with wings. They're just not. Not in the Bible anywhere. A man of God came to me with appearance like the appearance of an angel of God. Because Why? Because he had wings? No. Because he looked like a man. Very, but he, had, he was very awesome. I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb to the, to the day of his death. And when Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O oh Lord, please let this man of God whom you have sent, who have sent to us come to us again that he may teach us what, we, what to do for the boy who is to be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not there, not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came in the other day appeared to me and Manoah arose and followed his wife and when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you, not, are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he says, I am. So why would he ask that question if he had a big honking wing sticking out of his back? It doesn't make any sense. Because he didn't. But it was def he was definitely special. Keep going. Manoah now said, Now, when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I have said. She shall not eat or anything that comes from the vine, or drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I have commanded. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let me detain you so that we may prepare a kid for you. That's a goat or a, or a lamb. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I'll stay, if you will, but I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was speaking to the angel of the Lord. Like I said, because there's no honking wings hanging out of his back. <laughs> we, that's our picture in our head. We don't get that from the Bible. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? Here it comes. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name since it is wonderful? Hmm. Wild stuff. Manoah took the kid with his grain offering, offered it to the rock, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. It came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. Not a regular angel, ladies and gentlemen. 
It's not. Yeah, pre-incarnate Christ. You have a similar story. We won't go over and read it because y'all are listening you know, fairly slowly tonight. Over in the book of Joshua. Joshua, remember, is doing sentry duty after they cross the, 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 um, the Jordan River at Bethabara, which is where we're going to be in three weeks baptizing people, if y'all want to get wet, because we're going to do that, at the exact spot. So they crossed over to the Jericho side, and, uh, and Joshua is performing sentry duty. He's out on the edge of the camp, and he comes up across this man standing there with a drawn sword. Not a big honking wing came out of his back. He says, who are you? Are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel says, neither, but remove your sandals for the ground on which you stand on is, is hallowed ground. And it says not only did he remove his sandals, he went flat on his face. And the angel never picks him up, never says, oh, don't worship me. Every angel that encouraged worship in the Scriptures got, it, got in big trouble. This angel could get worshipped. In fact, not only did he say worship me, but he says even shoe leather is too high as low as you can possibly go. And this angel gives intel to, to uh, Joshua, if you recall, about how to conquer the city of Jericho. They're going to march around it seven days. And the seventh day, they're going to march around it seven times. And he says, because the battle is the Lord's. And then he disappears. So he encourages worship. So what kind of angel can encourage worship and get away with it, Scott Clean? Only one. Remember, the word angel, both in Hebrew and in Greek, just simply refers to a messenger. It can refer to a human being, it can refer to an angelic, supernatural creature, which we have, at least in our heads, have wings on it. Or it can even refer to, the, to Jesus, uh, because he can be a messenger of God, can't he? And so here we have in the Old Testament, way before the time of Isaiah writing, that we have this name referring to, and you may say, well, I'm not sure if that's totally true. Well, you can, you know, you're welcome to be wrong. Everybody's got a right to be. <laughs> Pre-incarnate Christ. So he calls him back to Isaiah. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So how do, you, how do you get him being only a man if you call him the Mighty God? Eternal Father, the word literally in the Hebrew, it's one word, that means Father of Eternity. How can he be just a man? Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace, several places, of course, we can Luke 2, 14, where the angels predict, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men, the coming of the birth of Christ, right? Uh, Romans 5, 1, where it says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have you know, this, this picture that's continuing here. There'll be no end to his government, no end to the peace that's coming through him. Now we're ready to go down to verse 8. And we're going to make it all the way through down to chapter 10. The Lord sends a message against Jacob. And, uh, against Jacob, and it falls on Israel, and all the people know it. This is Ephraim, and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting pride and arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down. But we will rebuild them with smooth stones. In other words, it doesn't matter what's happened. We kind of live in a culture today. It doesn't matter that the whole economy's crashed and everything. We're going to fight our way through this. Well, yeah, you might, if God so wills. But it's not a determination and not our smarts that's going to get us out of it. If we don't submit ourselves to God, there's going to come a day in which there won't be any reasoning, there's not enough education or money to pull us out of the spiral that we're going to be in. The bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore the Lord raises against them adversaries from the north, from resin, and spurs their enemies on, and the Arameans of the east, and the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws, and in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still outstretched. So this is a, 
This is a, a stanza of a, basically a dirge that's being said here. It's punctuated here in verse 12. It's going to be punctuated again down in verse 17. And then again over at the end of chapter 10, verse 4. It's, just, just, it's this refrain they keep going back to. This, his, hand, his, his hand is still stretched out. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. The Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush, in a single day. The head is the elder and the honorable man. The prophet who teaches the falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray. Those who guided them are brought to confusion. God has a real problem with leaders who lead people astray. He really does. In fact, he tells in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, he says, if you lead one of these little ones astray, it would be better for you that you had a huge millstone. We're going to see one in Israel. Did I say that we're going to Israel? In three weeks, you're going to see one of these original millstones. They're about this tall and about two feet wide, and they're made out of solid stone. Imagine that hung around your neck, and you chunked along with it into the sea. How fast do you make it to the bottom? It would be better for them if they led astray one of these little ones. It would be better for them that if they had a huge millstone hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea, a horrible death. Therefore, verse 17, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness in spite of all of his anger, does not return, and his hand is still outstretched. Again, this, there's this stanza again, back and forth, back and forth. For the wickedness burns like a fire, and it consumes briars and thorns, and it even sets the thickets of the forest of flame it will roll upward in the column of smoke and the fury of the lord of the host and the land is burned up and the people are like fuel for the fire and no man spares his brother they slice off what is on their right hand but still uh but are still angry they eat what is on their left hand but they do not satisfy even eat each of them eats the flesh of his own arm e Manasseh devours Ephraim, so there was this total infighting, and they were totally betraying each other. It was just a horrible thing. Manasseh devours Ephraim, Ephraim, Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger is not turned. His arm is there. This, there's this refrain again. Woe to those. We're going to go down to, through verse 4 of chapter 10 because it belongs really to the previous chapter. You'll see why. Woe to those who enact evil in statutes and to those who constantly return, regard unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of the justice and to rob the poor of their people of their rights, in order that the widow may be spoiled, be their spoil, and that they may plunder the orphans. Now, what will you do in the day of punishment, in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for your help? For there will, where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is not outstretched. Then, basically, we start a new chapter here in verse 5. Again, a lot of these chapters, chapter breaks are um, ambiguous. So we'll stop right there. Covered a lot of ground, a lot, not so much in Isaiah, but a lot of ground as far as the, what, what comes up out of Isaiah. Do you have questions? Where are you going to Israel? <laughs> Did I not say that? In about three and a half weeks. It's going to be great. It's going to be so good. It's going to have so much fun. We've always had so much fun over there. It, it is very tiring. Uh, you can testify to that, can't you, Susan? We run the whole time, the whole time. There's too much to see. There's too much to do. Uh, Marge has been. We ran her to death. She had dark hair before, and she came back with white hair. 
we make sure that we, uh, you get your money's worth, but more than anything, just because you're able to be in the land, able to see and stand in the places that you've heard about all your life and put, put visual pictures uh, to it, it's so incredibly uh, good. But it's exciting for me. I've been there a lot. Of course, Val and I have both been there a lot. It's exciting for me to go with people who've never seen it before to see them see it. So it's so great to, for them to experience that. And, of course, we're going to be going to places like Jordan that I've, I've been to part of Jordan, but not all of it. So we're going to go to Jordan. We're going to go a couple other places in Israel that I've never been. Israel still has a lot that you, even if you go there many times, that you still won't be able to see. The best thing to do is move over there. I think, Kevin, you're going to stay over there, what, a couple a week or two after that? So that's the way to do it. That's the way to go. Just hitchhike all over Israel. and You have to shave that beard. You kind of look Arab. You've got to get rid of that. They, they, they racial profile over there, just so you know. I don't know. They're real good at that. So now nah, you'll get away with it. You'll be fine. Something else? Yes, ma'am. So when you were talking about Zechariah 3.8, about the stone that had seven eyes on it, seven is the number of Jesus, right? No. Seven is not the number of perfection either. It's the number of completeness. Yeah, the seven spirits of God that are before the throne. Uh, the, the wrench that is thrown in the book of Revelation is that you have a dragon with seven heads in chapters uh, 12 and 13. And of course, he's not perfect. He's, if, if anything, he's perfectly evil. So but it's just a number of completeness. Six days you shall do your work, and the seventh you shall rest. And then the whole cycle starts over. So it's a complete week. It's a complete cycle of anything. So seven, seven eyes, of course, does Jesus have seven eyes? Of course not. Jesus is not a rock either. But these are all figurative uh, understandings. He's not a lamb either. But the lamb that you see before the throne in chapter 5 also has these seven eyes, which are the seven, he says there, it's the seven spirits of God, or the eyes of the Lord that roam through, to and throw throughout the earth. It's, it's, it's a complete, it's a, in other words, it's the completeness of all who God is. It's the completeness of all he's able to see. He sees everything. So it's not like he has two eyes. We all have those. He's got seven of them, if you will. So it's, it's just a picture of his complete understanding of all that's going on. He sees everything. He misses absolutely nothing. And so seven was an important number for them because, because they, they saw it as this complete thing. Because the whole world is, even though the whole world doesn't believe in God, in fact, the whole world turns its back on God, explain to me why we only have seven days then. So break out of that then. So I don't know, you're, you're an atheist or you're a Muslim or you're a the Hindu, so try to work on eight days or ten days. You, you can't tell me why we only have seven days. Unless you go to the Bible, you find out that's the way we're built. So you can ignore it, you can try to undo it, but you, it, you will go back to seven days. You say, well, we're just forced that way into our world system. Well, there's a reason for that. What's the answer? Maybe not one you like. Something else. Perfectly clear. So you're going to run down, you're going to go and overlay all the ages of, go get a chart and just lay out all the ages of the, the people who died before the flood, all those ages, starting with Adam and then Seth and then you know, Enoch and all these guys. And you're going to lay them out, you're going to find out some very interesting things. You're going to find out that Noah was 500 years old before the flood ever came. That he and Adam, at Adam's death, Adam only died maybe 100 years before Noah was born. And Noah lives 960 years after, 
not, he lives most of his life, or I should say almost half his life, after the flood. And you're going to find out also, I'm giving away all the fun, you're going to find out also that his sons, and what's the number? I'm trying to remember. Go, go into it. There's tons of stuff to learn. What, what was it? No, oh, that's right. So he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem lives so long after the flood that Abraham was a grandfather before Shem ever dies. And Shem was born 200 years before the flood. So if Abraham or his grandsons, which are Jacob and Esau, had wanted to know what it was like before the flood, the guy who was there before the flood was still living up there in the land of Ararat. The overlapping of ages, when you live that long, can you imagine the communication of wisdom if you could sit down today with your great-great-grandfather? Wouldn't that be something? That'd be amazing. He was still around to tell you that, oh, well, back in my day, which was 1700s, you know, we came over on the Mayflower, that was the Mayflower. We came over on something, and we fought a war with, uh, I don't know, uh, Pocahontas over there in the north, you know, in Jamestown and all that. Wow, wouldn't that be a story? Be around that long and have that much, that, imagine the kind of knowledge that we have, how, no offense, how dumb we are because we live such short lives and we're un detached from our ancestors and so all that accumulated knowledge we don't even know we know that the uh, lots of the great wonders of the world we know that they built them we have no idea how they built them because we have to reinvent that knowledge all the time because the people that have that knowledge die off and they don't leave it with us but if you lived a thousand years or if we could get them to live a thousand years imagine if our early fathers wouldn't that be awesome who created these united states and wrote the constitution we're still living today and instead of referencing a document that everybody seems to chop up nine ways to the insane asylum, we'd have the guys who originally wrote it and say, that's not what we meant when we said that. Wouldn't that be great? We'd eliminate a lot of mess really fast. Can only, can only dream about it, though. Ready to go? Shall we pray? God, we just submit ourselves to you. We know that your word is awesome and the things that you do are awesome. Help us, God, to dedicate ourselves to it, to learn, to uh, study, uh, to seek you. You are our teacher. You, you come and tell us all these things. You lead us into all truth, Lord. We're nothing but sheep. And uh, we have lost uh, so much wisdom, so much knowledge because of the uh, destruction and the corruption of sin in our world today. But, Lord, we don't have to go back and have all that again because we have the mind of Christ today. And we can know and see the things that are unseeable and unknowable to everyone else. Thank you, God, for leading us. And we put our hands in, in yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptistchurch.org.